So I'm excited about what the Lord is doing, and I'm just curious if you guys are ready for a word today, message today. All right, if you have your Bibles, open them up to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. I know, yeah, but I, I love that when you start a message on Revelation. It was like, oh, this is going to be interesting. Yes, awesome. Glad you came to church today. Revelation chapter 2, uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, that you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. You have persevered and have patience, have labored for my name's sake, and not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you want to say to us today in the Spirit, by your Spirit, hidden things that are unknown to us apart from your revelation, God. We're dependent upon you for this. I ask that you would speak through me, God, but that it would be your voice that people would hear. Meet them where they are, each and every one of us. God, and begin to do exactly what you want to do in this place and in our lives today. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. So a couple things about the book of Revelation. You know, a lot of people um, consider, which I think it is, of course, the most difficult book of the Bible to interpret. But a lot of times people assume that all of Revelation is apocalyptic, futuristic, and all prophetic. And and that's not actually the case. There's a lot of stuff in the beginning of Revelation, like what we read, and I'll explain, um, that were current at the time, but of course are still having application throughout all of the ages. And so what we start in the opening of Revelation with is the Apostle John, who gets this vision uh, he's, he's transported in spirit into the throne room of God, but he's getting a vision um, from heaven. And in the beginning, the Son of Man is instructing him to write seven letters to seven churches. These churches are all, at that time, presently, in the area of Asia Minor. So they were current, and these letters were going to them in their current state, right? So there's the historical application. However, throughout all of the ages, I would say that I I believe this, and most scholars do, uh, that there is an application for the church with all of these letters throughout all of the eras of time. So we can kind of step back and hold up our our church against these letters and discern, you know, where are we at? What is God saying? What's happening right now? In these seven letters going to seven churches, what you'll find is that there are commendations or 
uh, approvals, you know, good jobs, commendations, and rebukes, corrections, things that need to change. And uh, there are actually five churches of the seven that get a rebuke and a correction, a rebuke and a commendation, and there's two that just get a rebuke. Um, but they're to be looked at in totality. There's there's a full and complete message there. And what we're going to do is we're going to kind of dial into the one church today because there's the message of the church of Ephesus, which is often referred to as the loveless church. All right. A little bit about John. I don't know if you knew this, but he was the last apostle of the original apostles to die. Now, the Bible doesn't account for this, but historical documents from the first century do. So you take that for what it's worth. But John, uh, it was said that the emperor Domitian... Um, because of John's faith, you know, the Christians were being persecuted and put to death for their faith. John was put into a boiling uh, cauldron of oil, and he came out totally with no scars, no wounds, no burns, or anything. And so God's, you know, the report would be historically that God supernaturally uh, preserved him in that moment. And so then he was sentenced to exile on an island called Patmos, which John does account for. And they say he was like maybe 90-something when he finally passed, so the last of the originals. And so John is giving this, this vision, right? And he's speaking to the church in Ephesus, which we often refer to as the loveless church. And there are several commendations, but then there's also one rebuke. And the title of the message today is the, uh, Your First Love, if you're taking notes. Your First Love. And so we're going to examine this, um, the commendation, the rebuke, what, what is that speaking to us today? But point number one, just to establish some foundation here, is we're going to talk about stars and lampstands, because he, sp- he speaks about, you know, he who walks, the son of man, holding the seven stars in his right hand, and he walks among the seven lampstands. Now, just a few verses earlier in chapter one, he reveals the mystery to us. He says, what are these The stars are the angels of the seven churches in his right hand, and the lampstands are the churches themselves. So he comes right out and tells us what they mean, right? Little bit about the angels part. Um, That word in the Greek is used a lot in the New Testament, angelos. Many times it refers to angels, angelic beings, celestial beings. But this word can mean celestial or human. When it's celestial, it's guardian, angelic being. Uh, When it's human, it's messenger. They refer to angelos, angels, messengers, leaders, people sent to deliver a message for God. So let me just make a point here. Um, I don't think that the letter is to an angel over every church. But I do believe, very firmly supported by Scripture, that there are angels watching over our churches. (laughs) Uh, We have angelic beings that are doing God's will, God's assignment. Hebrews said that uh, angels are sent to minister forth to those who inherit salvation. Jesus himself in the garden, when he prayed, an angel came and strengthened him. So angels are carrying out the work of God. That's pretty cool to think about, right? But I do think that in this particular case, these letters are going to the leaders of the seven churches, the messengers, the ones who say are meant to bring this message and deliver this message to the people in the church so he who has ears to hear and eyes to see can hear and see. And so what are the lampstands? The lampstands are the churches, right? Now think about this for a second. 
Because lampstands were all through the Old Testament. It started out in really in Exodus. It was one of the artifacts that would decorate the tabernacle. But a, a, a lampstand uh, would have the branches, it had the stems, it would have the bowls, it would have the wicks and the stand, and then the oil would be poured into these bowls. And the lampstand, let me say it this way, would host or hold the flame. Does that make sense? So the flame is shining. The fire is projecting light, but the lampstand's job is to hold it, host it, to carry it well. The lampstand is our church. It's the church, and it's, it's our churches. And here's the desire of Jesus. He views his church, our churches, as a beacon of light that are meant to cast light into a region, an area of darkness. Right? He, he, he desires that. In fact, I can share this verse with you in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 and 16. He says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. He wants us to be a city on a hill, his people, his church. City on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light. To all who are in the house, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So Jesus views his church as a beacon of light, a lighthouse. It's meant to project his light into a region, an area, a world that's filled with darkness. And that flame, that fire that is being cast by God, through his people who are holding the flame well, who are being a lampstand, right? Um, That flame speaks to the supernatural assistance, favor, and grace that God gives us to carry out the work that he's calling us to do. Let me say it like this. Jesus wants to supernaturally advertise our churches to the world. You say, well, why does he want to do that? It's really simple. He wants people who are in darkness to find us. Right? He wants people who are in darkness to be able to find us. He says, I'll supernaturally assist that. And let me tell you something. When Jesus is supernaturally assisting our church, we don't need anything else. I mean, we do things, but we don't really need anything else. When Jesus is supernaturally assisting our church, he says, I'll shine through you. He says, I'll supernaturally draw people to you. I'll bring people. Where there's light, I'm going to draw people who are in darkness, who are looking for answers, who are looking for hope. One of the things that um, I always like to do with, we we get a real Christmas tree around Christmas time every year. And then when you're done with it, you know, you take it out and you throw it over in the woods and uh, it dries out. Have you ever thrown one of those big Christmas trees on a fire? <laughs> Dean, <laughs> it's fun. Uh, so we had some youth over and we had a big bonfire get together and I'm like, yeah, I watch this. So I go over and I grab the, it's a 10 footer, pastor guy, and I grab this thing. It's all dry and hard and brittle, you know, and I throw it on that bonfire. And I mean to tell you, that flame was... I, if it was not 30 feet, I don't know. It was 20, 30 feet in the air, crackling, popping. I mean, that flame is an inferno. People had to step back. And then people who were far away, guess what they did? They started running over to where that light was shining. 
Because it was dark outside, but then they could see. This is what I'm trying to say, right? When God is working through our churches, when Jesus is supernaturally assisting us, there's, a, there's an element to this that we can't do, that he will do, that he has to do for us. It says he is casting his light throughout an area, throughout a region, throughout a community, because he wants people who are in darkness to be able to find him. And he's using his church, his people, to be that beacon, to be that lampstand in order to do that. Really... It's impossible to have a church without a lampstand. I mean, we could go through the motions. In fact, the metrics can even check out sometimes on paper. Things kind of look good. But to be the church that Jesus is calling us to be, impossible without a lampstand. If he's not supernaturally assisting it, let me just say it this way. We can never do enough. Let me say it to our own lives. God has a calling and a purpose for us, but if he's not supernaturally assisting us with his favor and grace, you can never work hard enough. But when his grace and favor is on us in the works we do, game changer, total game changer. I've seen too much of it to to doubt it. It's the favor and grace that goes before us before we get there. It's the favor and grace that surrounds us on the sides with the flanks we can't see. It's the favor and grace that's behind us in our rear to account for the things that we overlook. It's the favor and grace that surrounds us everywhere we go, that builds our reputation, that establishes who we are, our credibility, and keeps us firmly rooted in what we're called to do. We can't do enough. But when his grace and favor is there, it's supernatural assistance. You know what Jesus' expectation of the church is? John 14, he says this, greater works will you do than I did. Now think about that for a second. That's a big statement. Greater works will you do than what you saw me do. What did Jesus do? He healed the sick. He cast out demons. Preached to the lost. uh, Ministered to the poor. Right? He says, greater works will you do. Jesus' expectation of his church is that supernatural works would be escalated. Wow, that's a big deal. Mark 16, the Great Commission, what does he say? Well, you're going to go into all the world, you're going to preach the gospel to the lost, you're going to make disciples, they're going to be baptized. Listen, he also says this, you're going to cast out demons. You're going to trample on serpents. You're going to lay hands on the sick, and they're going to get healed. You're going to pray and speak in other languages. You're going to do supernatural works. This is what God calls us to. This is what he commissions his church to. And the foundation for supernatural works is that God is first and foremost, that he is our first love. So we see that uh, there's, this, there's this favor, there's assistance that God wants to give to his church. And then he's talking to this church in Ephesus and in the beginning, he gives them a, condemn, uh, a commendation. Verses 2 and 3. We won't reread it, but it, there's a lot of things in there, and it's really, it's really good. He says, I've got to give you some credit. Um, and I'm going to paraphrase, but you're, you're, you're doing a lot of things right. You're, you're running a pretty good church, actually. You really are. You're doing, you're doing pretty well. On paper... You're checking a lot of boxes. It looks good. If I'm thinking about this to my own life, like personally, individually applying, I would say like, 
you know, sometimes we can just be going through a lot of the motions too. God might be saying, um, you're doing a lot of things, you're doing a lot of things right, you're checking a lot of boxes. You know, you're putting a roof over your head, you got food on the table for your family. Um, your attendance at church is pretty good, you're pretty regular. Making charitable donations. Heck, you even stop at the stoplight every now and then and give money to that person that walks up to your windshield. <laughs> On paper. And listen, these are all good things. Important things. But you've got to look at this in the context of the way he's saying it. Everything. Because he says, you're doing a lot of things right. Nevertheless. I have this one thing against you. So this is where we move from the commendation into the rebuke. And what does he say? He says, this is what I have against you. You're doing all these things, right? You're checking all these boxes, but you've left your first love. You've left your first love. In fact, you've been so consistent um, that it's actually become methodical. It's, it's become routine. And this is what can happen, is that we have this relationship with Jesus that's meant to be white hot, passionate, on fire, in love, first love. Um, but then as we do the works of God, as we do the things that he leads us to, it can happen where a drift occurs. And a drift occurs, and then all of a sudden these things become mundane and routine instead of full of purpose, passion, and joy. These things are good, but whenever we drift, they become not good because something that was supposed to be first isn't first anymore. Am I making sense? And a relationship with Jesus can start to become transactional. I go to God for what I need. Lord, I need this to do this. Lord, you wanted me to do this. I'm doing this. I'm busy. I got a lot going on. Lord, I'm over my head. Come on. I need this. I need this. I need this. And all of a sudden, this relationship with Jesus becomes totally transactional. We know he wants us to come to him with our petitions, our prayers, and our needs. Yes. But when it's all about that, he says something, something's not right here. And, he, and he's calling out the church. See, the church in Ephesus, they were dutiful but distracted. Their love had degenerated into routine, right? And their, now their duty was replacing devotion. And so what he's saying, here's the message to the church. You don't love me like you used to. You don't love me like you used to. I love you and I love us. This thing between you and me, that's what it's all about. This vertical relationship with God, when this is right, all this is right. Horizontal relationships, works, things we're doing in our life, right? He's trying, to, he's trying to say, and he's saying, look, you left your first love. It's just, this is very encouraging to me. You know what it says? Um, I need you to get back. I want you to get back to where you once were. He said, you were there. You were there. You, 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 we did. You remember how it used to be? We did have this relationship. And, and I'm, I'm hurt and I'm grieving and I'm giving you some time. I'm trying to help you see uh, you, you, don't, you don't love me like you used to. It's not the same anymore. And it, it needs to change. And we're going to get to the warning here in a second. If it doesn't, he says, it needs to change. But you used to love me this way. And this is what I've found, right? I've been in ministry now 10, 11 years. Um, 
fully vocationally. And what I have found is that it is so awesome to spend consistent time around new believers. <laughs> like it is, it's important to spend time being around new believers because new believers, they have a passion. When it's genuine and it's authentic, and I think, man, when it happens, it's like, well, their eyes are open, and they have a passion and a love for Jesus that's contagious, Amen. right? And he's saying, you, uh, you've left this place. And I think in many ways, like new believers, people who are just getting on fire for God, they can kind of teach the rest of us a lot <laughs> sometimes about just keeping that flame and keeping that fire burning. And Paul says, uh, I don't ever want you to forget where you came from. He says, remember the darkness that you came out of. I think that's something we need to always keep in mind, right? But he says, you don't love me like you used to. Um, And because things aren't good between us, then this stuff isn't good anymore either. Even if you're checking the boxes. These things work when this is working. These are, let's say, secondary. This is primary. That's what it means by first love. Now, can I just make a statement? Think about this. If God isn't first, then something else is. And God's not in the competition business. He's, he can't take, you know what I'm saying? He's preeminent. He cannot take a place other than first. He's not jockeying around for position. It's first or it's not. It's the way it is. And so he says, uh, but when this is right, I'll supernaturally assist and empower all this. And you can't do enough to compare to what it looks like whenever my hand is on it. And that's really what we want, right? I love the C.S. Lewis says it this way. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. Isn't that good? He's saying... By putting me first, you're not detracting from all of these other good things. By putting me first, you're actually making all, making all these things better. They're not suppressed. They're increased. This is God's design for us. And so he's, he's giving them some time. He's saying, I want you to get back to your first love. And if you don't, here's the warning. He says, I'm going to take away your lampstand. Hmm. In the New Living Translation, it says, I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Which its place in the Greek means a seat or principality, a door that God has opened for a place of influence. Wow. Wow. So God wants to supernaturally advertise our churches, promote bring people that are lost to, in darkness to light. He wants to put his hand of favor and grace and empowerment on the things that we do, but he makes it really clear. He says, if I'm not first, if you don't love me first, I'm going to take away your lampstand. It doesn't mean there's not still grace and mercy and things like that available, but the supernatural assistance, that, that, that game changer, that X factor to the works that we're doing, he's saying, I'm not going to assist that the same way. Which really makes sense because if we've got powerless, dry, dead, passionless churches and people, just hear me on this, 
That's a terrible advertisement for an awesome God. Is it not? I mean, on fire with passion and purpose and love where God is, you know, this is the foundation of the works that he calls us to do, that he is first. And I do, I think that churches can have that and that they can lose that, evidenced by this letter. You have it, I'm going to take it away. I think they can have that and then they can lose that. And then I think there's times where they never had it at all. But here's what I think a lot of times is the reason for that, is that he's saying, you need to get back to where you were. You've drifted. So if a generation fails to make that turn and that pivot and get back to where they were, then here's what happens. The generation behind them comes along, and they don't know anything except the dead, dry, powerless stuff that they grew up in. And they never actually got exposed to the real thing. And now you have a generation that moves in, and that's all that they know. Now things have to be broken off. That makes sense. I mean, you can have, without that grace and favor and supernatural assistance, I feel like sometimes it's like churches are begging people to come and be a part, and nobody's interested. But when God's grace and favor is supernaturally assisting what you do, I mean, you can't keep track of all of them. God's bringing people because he says, there's a lighthouse here, and I'm going to bring people who are in darkness because this is my work, this is what I do, and I'm going to bring them to places where I know I can entrust the leadership there and the work that's happening there, and there's a house full of people, there's a church full of people who are carrying the flame, who are holding the flame, who are being a good lampstand, and I'm going to work through that. I'm going to cast my flame in that light around that community and around that region. It's the edge to our effectiveness. It's the edge to our effectiveness. I was reading in a book, uh, it's called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. It's a business book. It's pretty good if you want to check it out. But in the book, he tells a story, um, speaking about edge and effectiveness, he tells a story about an axe man competition. You ever watch those? Those are really cool. Those guys are studs, right? I mean, they're amazing what they do. Um, So he tells a story about an axe man competition. And the finalists in the competition, there was a Norwegian and a Canadian. And it's not a joke. <laughs> and, and the Norwegian and the Canadian. Yeah. Uh, and in the competition, on the final day, what they had to do is they, they came in, I think it was 8 o'clock, the bell rang. And for eight hours, they were to chop timber. And whoever cut the most timber down would win. So, bell rings, 8 o'clock, they start chopping. They're listening to each other's chops, and they're just trading blow for blow, right after another, right after another, right after another. All of a sudden, at 10 to the hour, right, 8.50, the Norwegians' blows stop. So the Canadian's like, oh, I'm going to get ahead of him. And he starts chopping furiously for the next 10 minutes. Here's nothing from the Norwegian. He's like, this is, I'm, I'm gaining ground. Nine o'clock hits, boom, here comes the Norwegian again. Chop, chop, chop. Now they're trading blow for blow again. Ten minutes on the hour, happens again. Continues. Every hour on the hour, the last ten minutes of the hour, the Norwegian stops. The Canadian keeps going. He's gaining ground. The bell rings at 4 p.m. He's like, I got this in the bag. He was shocked to find out that he lost. So he's upset. He's confused. Goes over, says to the Norwegian, I got to ask, how in the world did you possibly 
cut down more timber than me. We were trading blow for blow, chop for chop. And every hour on the hour, 10 minutes to the hour, you stopped chopping. And I kept chopping. I gained ground every time, but yet somehow you still won. Please tell me, what did you do? He says, well, it's very simple. At 10 minutes to the hour and every hour, I stopped and sharpened my axe. Wow. It's the edge to our effectiveness. This being right is what makes all of this right. And when it's his grace and his hand and his favor on what we're doing, nothing compares. Nothing compares. Not only to how blessed and fruitful the results are, but listen to me, how wonderfully exhilarating and fulfilling and full of joy and peace and satisfaction it can be. I wonder, have you maybe drifted into a place where it feels like you're just going through the routine, like it's methodical, it's just checking boxes, and what was so full of life and passion at one time is just something's missing now, and it's becoming mundane. If so, can I suggest to you that something is amiss? <laughs> That's not God's intention. When we are working for him and co-laboring with him, and he's blessing what we're doing, his favor and grace upon it, it's fully satisfying, fully rewarding, and it's a life full of purpose and joy and passion. And when that flame is burning white hot in a people but in a church, oh, God says, I'm going to shine that light over a region. I'm going to change a community. But I'm looking for people, and I'm looking for churches who will be a lampstand, who will hold the flame well. It's, it's not a set it and forget it kind of thing. We all have some of those things, don't we? Like for me, I have my alarm clock on my phone. I set my alarm clock uh, for whatever time I'm going to get up, and then I just forget about it. Set it and forget it. It's going to go off. I'm confident in that. I have faith that it's going to work. I set it and I forget it. Unless there's a really huge day coming up the next day like a big one. And if I'm late, lots of people are impacted. It's not going to go well. And so I set like two or three alarms. I don't know if you guys do it that way, Pam. I set like two or three alarms. And even when I do that, you know what happens? I wake up every hour on the hour and I'm just like, I'm ready to go. I'm waking up. Oh, not time. No, not time. I I can't just set it and forget it. In those moments, there are things we set and just forget about. There are things we set and we set and we set and we keep setting and we keep setting. And this is one of those things, God being first, it's not something we just set and forget. We set, we set, we set, we keep talking about it, we keep reminding each other about it, we keep taking ourselves into prayer. We keep stoking that flame so that it's always burning white hot because it's possible, as we see in Scripture, for a drift to occur. God says, I don't want that. I want to use people who are on fire for me. And I pray that often we raise up people here in this house who are mature, strong Christians who have a sensitivity to these things. Because there's no way I can tell you that it will never happen or never occur or never start to drift. But what I can tell you is we can get to a place where we have a heightened sensitivity for these things. And God's pricking our heart. He's 
touching us. He's, hey, I'm going to draw you back in. Hey, we're getting a little off here. Oh, yeah, bring you back. Heightened sensitivity. And you know what God does? He creates the moments and the opportunities for us that we must cease. Yes. Oh, Lord, thank you for reminding me. This is so good. This is so good. Thank you, God, for this. And thank you for all this. And we live in this place where God is he's working through us. And he's doing what only he can do to the works that we're setting our hand to. He says, uh, I'm asking you to repent and get back to where you once were, which basically means to change your mind and get a new mind, to turn away and turn to. And, and God is just, he's so merciful and he's so patient and he's so long-suffering. He's saying, hey, I'm, I'm giving you an opportunity. I want you to get a, turn back from where you've got to and I want you to get back to where you need to be. And he gives, us, he gives us time. He gives us these moments and these reminders. And ultimately, as we begin to wrap this message up today, this is what I think. Now, I know I'm partial, and I get that. Um, but I feel like that we, we have this flame, this fire here in our church. I really do. I, I feel so blessed to be surrounded by a bunch of people, young and old, who are madly in love with Jesus. I mean, it is, it's awesome. I love it. I don't think this message today, though there may be some, you know, that are like, oh, I've drifted, and, and if so, man, I pray the Lord is, is touching you today. But I really feel like the way the Lord laid this on me is he was kind of saying, you got this right here. This is happening. You're doing this well, but I want to make sure <laughs> that you don't lose focus on this. Does that make sense? I, I, I think he's saying, like, I'm going to bring people. Things are going to happen. Things are going to grow. I'm going to grow my church. Well, let me tell you what you got to do. You better make sure that this stays. You better make sure this stays number one and if it does I'm going to work through you guys I'm going to do great things it's going to be a lampstand and it's going to light up this region but it's got to stay first we got to make sure he is the first love in our heart are you with me